I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. Welcome to School of Everything Else. Masters of the Universe Revelation. In the center of the universe, on the planet Eternia, looms Castle Grayskull, ancient fortress of mystery. Its power sought by the dark forces of Snake Mountain, sanctuary of sin and sorrow, ruled by the demon Skeletor and his evil acolytes. And the only thing that stands in their way is Prince Adam, who defends the secrets of Castle Grayskull as He-Man, the most powerful man in the universe. Only four others share this secret. Guardians of Greyskull all, amidst an army of the Honorable, committed to guarding Castle Greyskull from the havoc of destruction. For those who control Greyskull control the power, the power to be masters of the universe! Many years ago, in 2016, Sharon and I recorded a School of Everything Else on both He-Man and the Masters of the Universe and She-Ra, Princess of Power, focusing on the early 1980s cartoons of the same respective names. He-Man ran continuously, He-Man, for 130 episodes from September 1983 to December 1984, the last being The Cold Zone, written by J. Michael Straczynski, who started out writing for this show alongside Batman the Animated Series scribe Paul Dini. Straczynski would go on to helm Babylon 5 and become one of the greatest comic writers of all time. It was also the first TV show made to be based on a toy, with Mattel kicking off the Reagan era of effectively feeding kids my age 23-minute animated commercials for whatever was currently adorning the aisles at Toys R Us, Gamleys and Woolworths. She-Ra was a spin-off for girls, marketing dolls with rooted brushable hair to them, but also hideous horde monster characters for the boys, sold of course in two different aisles. The Shiwa cartoon ran from September 85, nine months after He-Man's last episode, though syndication, toy sales and the mountain of episodes already in existence kept Masters running. She-Ra's last episode, number 93, Swifty's Baby, aired in December 1987. That same year, in August, the Canon Films non-canonical Motu film reached cinemas to the delight of few, signalling the end of this first run, as Turtle Mania geared up to grip the nation and indeed the globe, and their running mates Transformers, Thundercats, The Real Ghostbusters, G.I. Joe and My Little Pony were also struggling to hold overstimulated kids' attention. We also did a show on the Dolph Lundgren Frank Langella film, I still have a soft spot for it, and Frank in particular had a ball playing Skeletor, which is always fun to watch. I don't think I can remember a single He-Man anything where the person playing Skeletor wasn't having a fucking blast. He's just the best character to play. There was a brief New Adventures Mattel relaunch and a new cartoon with a sci-fi setting and a secret rat tale in 1990 that ran for 65 episodes from September to December and then sank without trace. Then 12 years went by and in January 2002 there was a Back to Basics relaunch with an action-packed cartoon show. This one did many things better than the original and the toy line sculpted by the legendary Four Horsemen reimagined so many of these cute rounded 
daft characters as sinewy badasses, but the toys were also beleaguered by too many uninspiring He-Man and Skeletor variants, and we're just talking like they're neon for this one, like not much of a variation, or they have like a big blob of plastic that's their terror claw. And at the time, they were competing with the far more impressive visuals of Dragon Ball Z, Gundam Wing, Samurai Jack, and the unhinged antics of the Powerpuff Girls. So that petered out by 2004. After that, the license became a Mattel mail-order toy line focused on adult collectors who were now in their 30s, getting an extensive monthly, almost kind of a subscription service-like model of regular, bespoke, rad-as-hell reimaginings of the 80s figures, assisted to begin with again by the Four Horsemen. And that's kind of where He-Man languished for well over a decade, as toys for the same boys now grown up with grown men delighted to get hulking versions of clawful whiplash and weird rare deep poles from the early design stages like Demo Man, the bearded green prototype for Skeletor, or Wondar, the mythical bread giveaway barbarian. After we did our show and I wrote The Princess Thieves, because Shiwa had been very much on my mind at the time, I was reimagining the original Secret of the Sword movie into a gender-flipped Arthurian legend, slamming into a roguish but good-hearted dwarf Robin Hood. But that was because there was no modern She-Ra at the time. And then there was. Because in 2018, the Netflix show She-Ra and the Princesses of Power, plural, launched to praise and adulation from fans and screaming ire from man-babies complaining that she wasn't being designed to look sexy for them specifically. And the show was filled with emotional vulnerability and queerness, tapping into the Gen Z energy with an honesty that Willow in particular adored. Honestly, bearded boys complaining that a Shira show isn't being made with them in mind is a special kind of hill to die on. We did a show on that surprisingly brisk and efficient five-season story that was over as suddenly as it began. And in the meantime, showrunner Noelle Diana Stevenson has transitioned to Nate Diana Stevenson and identifies as non-binary trans mask, making their work on the transformation tribulations of She-Ra Matrix-like in its personal connection. And then, around the time the pandemic hit, this show went into production, emerging just over a year later in July 2021, almost 20 years after the last He-Man cartoon and shaky toy line with ups and downs. It was godfathered by Kevin Smith, who was a indie wonderkind director in the 90s, who has since had kind of his ups and downs uh, in, in the meantime, but kind of found his... Rather than trying to maintain the big time, he kind of got his audience who all really like his stuff and maintained that. One can commiserate. He seems to have found a, uh, a place by making his name being the guy who knows about comics and 80s kid stuff. Hmm. Well, it's kind of the reason he was brought in by John Peters to uh, do Superman Reborn. Correct. Robot Spider. Um, so, Masters of the Universe Revelation takes the form of a two-season miniseries with five episodes per season, launched 
six months apart with part one dropping July 23rd, 2021, all five episodes, and part two, December 23rd, 2021. For context, this was around the time that Mattel also launched the Masters of the Universe Origins line, recreating the chonky, colourful 80s figures for dads to buy their sons and for themselves, and for bearded men to unbox and review on YouTube. I got fully into this and managed to track down most of my old favourites and a bunch that I never got hold of before. Opposite this was the Masterverse line for adult collectors of Spawn figures and anime statuettes. This fared less well with collectors for various reasons that will become apparent, not least being that the He-Man figure is pretty hideous, at least the first one they went with, and, and considering the prior two decades had been wall-to-wall -wall really great-looking He-Man figures, with the license branching out from Mattel to Super 7 and replicating the animated look, Masterverse had zero excuses for looking fugly, and I would hate to think that this line gets cancelled way too early just because He-Man didn't look great, because loads of the later figures aren't fugly at all and they're actually really cool. At the same time as Kevin Smith's show aimed at adults aired on Netflix, there was an unconnected kids TV show, the third to be entitled simply He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. There was the 83 one, there was the 2002 one. It's up to three seasons at, by this point in 2023 as we're recording this, and we have recently watched a few episodes. Seems okay, potential to get better, but very much focused on hyperactive boys who really like action sequences. It skews pretty young, just like the original show, and it has the look of Skylanders about it. We found out today when uh, we were watching the uh, Toys That Made Us documentary on Masters of the Universe... Mattel originally published these mini-comics with the figures to sort of build the world around them and sort of like give kids something to work off of when they were sort of designing their play. And somebody in production said, wait a second, we're marketing these to five-year-olds. Five-year-olds can't read. So they made the Filmation TV show a year later to effectively bring He-Man to kids unable to read the mini-comics. So these, th this is the show that fans are pointing back at and going, look at this, Kevin Smith murdered this. It was for kids who couldn't read yet, including us. Anyway, fuck it. But back to the Skylanders show, props to them for reimagining Ram Man as a girl who likes to butt things with her head. She's named Ram Mam, along with Teela the Sorceress taking a more active role in the conflict rather than huddling in Castle Greyskull forever dispensing advice. Also, Cringer is now in the Duncan role, Man at Arms, as a grizzled old warrior fretful over having been declawed and overjoyed to be able to kick wholesale ass as Battle Cat. There's also another... Man at Arms kid called Duncan, who I am not sure about yet. He's certainly not taking the role of grizzled old dude. He's a nerd. But let's get back to this adult miniseries revelation, because that's what the focus of this episode of School of Movies is on. And I consider it important for me to get done. Like, I, I realized I've, I've got to do this. Because looking on YouTube, try as I might, all I could find was bile and loathing for Kevin Smith's reimagined Masters of the Universe. It would be easy to hand wave this as just the same crowd that hated Princesses of Power. But that show also got a lot of praise and adulation and YouTube videos about why it's great and, and why this delivered the Catra Shira relationship we really wanted. But I can't find those for this, which is baffling to me on so many levels because Revelation is really good. 
At least it was for us. When I started this project, when I started writing this essay, it was my second favourite He-Man or She-Ra thing, with Princesses of Power being at the top. But I have found so much in here, it's edged its way... I mean, it's still really pretty tight. It's edged its way to my favourite He-Man media. No, edging the He-Man media is tight. So that's saying something. And even for Willow, who doesn't give a flying fuck about Masters of the Universe, doesn't care for the toys or any of the cartoons, doesn't... Except Princess of Power. Liked Princesses of Power. But definitely not into He-Man. But really liked this miniseries, which the three of us watched over two nights at the pace of two epic animated movies, which is what it is ideally suited for. So regarding spoilers, we are going to effectively take this episode by episode, telling you which one we're going to be discussing each time, threading character studies in as we go. We will hold off on part two talk during part one, so as and when you decide to go and watch one or both parts, you can come back to us for the rest. A recurring response I've seen on our Discord is a lot of folks who saw all of part one, all five episodes, really want to get back to part two, but that six-month interlude threw almost everyone off, especially with the torrent of loathing on YouTube. It became kind of like common knowledge that this show was garbage, so why go back? And you're like, oh, I kind of liked it. Oh, I wonder. Anyway, but these guys are the experts. <laughs> Honestly, it was that way with us. We only just saw the second part this past week in spring 2023. It's been out since December 2021. The reason being that I got to the end of part one and thought Willow would really like that. And I tried to show it to Willow a while back and they went, eh, not he, man. And then we just got Willow at just the right time. I think they'd been admiring an action figure or two on the shelf. And they, they sat patiently through it and actually really engaged. And so then we got to watch all of part two together. And I just, it's very easy to keep putting a pin in it on Netflix originals because you know they're not going anywhere. It's also noteworthy that if you go back to all those big algorithm chomping videos on YouTube, most of what that anger seems to derive from covers part one. And what we don't want to do is second-guess reasons why these people hated it. Our assumptions have little critical value to them, as it could have been a million things. We can make some fucking educated guesses, we can correlate, but that doesn't necessarily make it true. But what we can do is tell you how we feel about what we consider to be a genuinely strong miniseries. So we're just going to talk about this one-off limited show which follows on from the chronology of the original 130 episodes. This is 131 through 40. The last one being written by J. Michael Straczynski in 1984. And it picks up threads left dangling, and they didn't even know it, for nigh on 40 years. Delivering an experience that both is deeply in love with the source material and wildly excited to bring in toys and characters that never made the cartoon, sometimes neither cartoon, for joyous action sequences. But it also takes these, let's face it folks, paper-thin characters and power fantasies, rescues from the depths of the 1980s the occasional flashes of really good comic-style writing that occasionally happened. I want to give credit where credit's due, and there also have been comics ever since then which do flesh out and deepen characters like that, but most people don't know that stuff. But significantly, Revelation treats them and us like mature adults, which was refreshing. Because it's, 
whoa, smashing stuff together. Like, I, honestly, the thing that it kind of reminded me of was Godzilla 2 King of the Monsters. Remember when Bob Chipman was doing his review and just going, whoa, blah, blah. I think he actually brought He-Man in at that point. It's like, and then He-Man turns up and they fight Godzilla. It's got that kind of joy of doing that. But it's also mixed in with some really dark, often depressing stuff. So the tone might seem to swing all over the place. But I feel by the time it gets to the end, it makes those shifts valid. And it gives it a grounding and a foundation of heart. And there's a sincerity to it. And honestly, I feel like the absolute worst thing they could do with this is to divide it with six months of a gap. Release the first five in week one, weekend one, a, a, a movie effectively, and then one week later, seven days later, seven days of constant chatter, what's gonna happen next, the other five. Yeah. I know that doesn't really work with production schedules, but just hold the whole thing back till December. They, I think they overestimated wildly, and this wouldn't be the only time that Netflix has done this, frankly, uh, how much and how long they can sustain the uh, social media water cooler effect. Do you know why I think they extended it like this? Fucking toys. I think Mattel wanted to shift wave one, wave two, wave three, and wave four before part two of Revelations came along. Over the six months of, hey, do you want to buy these four and these four of Masterverse? And to keep the origin stuff selling. Mm. I think. I, I could be wrong. Maybe. It just... Uh, it. It seems a little baffling. I, I feel like, you know how loads of people went to see the second Matrix film and fewer people went to see the third Matrix film. I feel like the ones let down by number two didn't come back for number three. And frankly, I went back for number three and was disappointed at the time. It's grown on me since then. Who knew? Doing a school of movies on something can often open, it up. open up its secrets like Castle Grayskull itself. As we go along, one of the things that really snared Willow was check out the voice cast on this one. I think in the interim years since this came out and we watched it, Willow has started to develop a genuine appreciation for really talented voice actors, of which there's actually quite a small incestuous pool, as we've established over the years of people going, why don't they just hire professional voice actors for this Hollywood movie? I think part of that is honestly learning to do it themselves. Good point. Willow has in fact entered into the stratosphere of voice acting on an independent scale. Indeed. And is remarkably accomplished in a story, Panthersoul, that draws more than a little inspiration from Masters of the Universe and Thundercats. <clears throat> okay, so episode one of ten, The Power of Grey Skull, which is quite a this shit's going down now type title. One of the core inciting incidents is the revelation uh, in episode one that Prince Adam has been He-Man all along. 130 episodes, Teela had no idea. This comes as a particularly hard blow to his bodyguard, who has spent years thinking Adam was a goofball kid who needed constant protection. And it turns out he was hiding his immensely powerful alter ego from her all along. 
This could be dealt with in dramatic fashion through heated back and forth, retreating, pursuing and dragging out all of the hurt onto the table. A bottle episode where Adam and Teela talk and it gets heated. But Teela, played by Sarah Michelle Gellar in stern Buffy mode, finds out in the worst possible way. She is right there at the centre of Castle Greyskull, a fortress that Skeletor, played by the Mark Hamill in theatrical Joker mode, has finally been successful in infiltrating, only to kill He-Man in the process of unlocking the mysterious archive at the core of Greyskull. Teela is horrified and experiences overwhelming grief bewildered at her now useless place as bodyguard, since her charge is now dead. The actual confluence of events is the sorcerer stops time as Skull gets unlocked, and as it transpires, the whole universe is going to be destroyed, but He-Man says, I'm going to step up and try to pull this thing back together, and Teela says, no, you'll be killed. And it's like, dude, you know the universe is quite... I just, I happen to be one of the idiots who lives in it! Either way, she's justifiably emotional, but at the same time, she doesn't. She still doesn't know he's Adam at this point because he just turned up as He-Man. But in tearing the power sword apart, which is what He-Man has to do in order to stop this cataclysm happening, he is disintegrated, and apparently so is Skeletor as well. Adam's father, King Randor, played by brave and bold Batman, Dietrich Bader, is at a loss for how to react to the death of his son. He fires Duncan, man-at-arms, Teela's adopted father, for hiding his son's secret from his king, and yet it also becomes apparent that his wife, Queen Marlena, played by Batgirl Alicia Silverstone, secretly also knew that Adam was He-Man, which rips the royal couple apart and causes Teela's fury to explode as she admonishes everyone, including Orko and Cringer, all of whom she has known and trusted since infancy, all of whom, aside from King Randor, knew Adam was He-Man. She rejects the Eternian royal family, marching away from the palace, not at all dissimilarly from fan-favorite Star Wars lady Ashoka Tano. This is an exceptionally dark turn of events that begins by bringing out the worst in everyone and gathers steam as the show goes on until the developments conversely bring out the best in everyone. In this way, it is rather similar to The Last Jedi, wherein there is palpable love for Star Wars amid both poking fun at it and spinning painful drama by delivering to our heroes the worst things that could happen to them. And Mark Hamill is at the epicenter once more eating up the camera, or at least he would be if Skeletor weren't also obliterated in this cataclysmic opening event, leading thence to a time skip, a rad undercut for Teela, and everyone, heroic or evil, going their separate ways. Honestly, I don't think fandoms can accept this type of story structure. It has been proven with this, with Star Wars, with Terminator in Dark Fate, with the early death of John Connor. Fandoms cannot stand having their male heroes laid low or being taken out of the picture in order to tell a new kind of story, spotlighting other characters, support characters, lady characters. Again, not going to second-guess the all of the people who say Revelation is pure trash. This is one structural commonality and reception commonality worth noting. I also went to check out the Rotten Tomatoes scores for these. Most of the Universe Revelation with critics, 92%. No positive videos on YouTube. 
with audiences 37 percent 37 it almost seems like kevin smith orchestrated that himself no no make it 37 muse you you vote it down one more time Last Jedi, just, you know, picking a film out of a hat, 91% tomatometer with the critics, 42% audience score. So there's a 5% variable of more people clearly liked The Last Jedi a little bit more. Uh, but every time any every time any article mentions this thing, they have to play the centrist line and say, oh, it was very divisive. Like, we're not going to take sides and say it was good or it was bad. It was very divisive. <sighs> but it would appear that the people who liked it don't make YouTube videos. And if they do, they're not getting to the top. Hmm. Hmm. The other thing that uh, seems to be uh, cropping up repeatedly, the article, the last article I read before we started this, and like after I'd finished my notes, said that uh, apparently fans were very, very unhappy that they'd been lied to. They were told that this would be a He-Man story directly by Kevin Smith. He came to their house, shook them by the hand, and said, this is a He-Man story. And then it turned out to be a Teela story. I am disgusted. And honestly, like, they're not wrong that they were lied to. They're not wrong that they were lied to when J.J. Abrams went, oh, no, it's definitely not just Wrath of Khan again, when it turned out it was, in fact, Wrath of Khan again. It feels like, I mean, you can lie to people's faces and say, the Spider-Men are not going to be in this film. And then it turns out they are in this film and everyone's overjoyed. But if you tell them this is a story about Spider-Man and then it turns out to be, I don't know, an, a Gwen Stacy or MJ story, they're going to hit the fucking roof. They like to be surprised with delightful things. Here is a list of things we would like to be surprised <laughs> by. Right. Okay. I'm... They don't like to be surprised by having things they like taken away. I am going Even to... if it is the basis for the drama of the piece and they get the thing back again anyway. I am going to say this once and once only. And anybody who knows me will realise how unlikely it is that I would ever find myself at a place in life where I would say what I'm going to say next. Holy shit. Which is that there is a difference between lying and advertising. <laughs> I'm never saying that again. <laughs> that was but your one time, folks. when it comes folks. to this particular context... Promotion. Exactly. There is a difference. And getting upset because you feel like you've been promoted something that you then don't get is kind of fundamental to how advertising works. Also, all those boys who are like, oh, it's, not a, it's not a kid's thing, Dad, this is grown up. This show is incredibly grown up. It's very fucking mature. It's not dark, deep, mature, oh, so gritty. It just deals with kind of mind-blowing themes and really sad, quiet little adult themes and things that you do have to face as you get older and fatter. But it does also have moments of genuine violence... Oh, yeah. There's some, like, real... I hope you didn't get kids with watching this. And also, Kevin Smith, it would appear, no matter what property you put him in charge of, is incapable of fully repressing his desire to throw innuendo into everything. There is one point when Fisto says, I'd really like to fist him! And the entire audience raised their eyes to heaven. Yeah, and when Randor says, Come kiss the ring! Yeah, yeah. It's fine. It's a playful... There's quite a bit of that knocking around. Like, juvenile adult at times, but at the... Because Kevin Smith, who is a juvenile adult. But at the same time, if you compare this to all Kevin Smith's other films, it really... Only Chasing Amy and a couple more that I can't really put a finger on right now and a bunch I haven't seen really come close. Mm. 
just in terms of, of, of adult pain that's yeah. actually in this. Mm. There's also the case of we hate being lied to, but we also want to know everything that's going to happen in this thing so we can say, yep, I predicted it, or like we need to be given just enough clues that we can breadcrumb trail together a prediction for how the story is going to be structured and then when it is we go mm, yeah splendid and then if it doesn't go our way and our Snoke theory turns out to be refuted we toss our toys which are He-Man out of the pram. Is that the problem? Is it is it not so much that they've been lied to as they have misinterpreted promotional material mm. and are pissed off because their predictions were not correct? Maybe I again I no, I, I, I don't know. This is speculative. I do this is speculative. So but sorry. the constant demand for why can't we get something original clashes with we were lied to. Mm. Yes. Well, we want you to regurgitate our childhood in a way that feels original. It did. Not that way. <laughs> <laughs> Not like this. Hey. Right. Okay. Okay, so I mean that's that's really the setup. Every subsequent episode, we can actually talk about the actual uh, the, the the developments of this. In episode two, the poison chalice, which I feel was named that because of a specific actress in this particular miniseries who shines. Tila is now a wandering mercenary many months later who pulls muscle jobs with her traveling companion, Andra, an obscure lady guard from a few panels of the old mini-comics in the very early 80s. However, Andra here has been reimagined as a lady of color who is a little more optimistic than the now grim Tila. After dealing with Stinkor, voiced by Jason Mewes, who I was pleased to see was now working with Kevin Smith again because there have been long periods where Mewes was told, nope, you are on the skag, I, don't, I can't work with you. Absolutely. They get recruited by an old lady who is so obviously Evil Lynn, played by Lena Headey in Game of Thrones mode. That's what I think the poison chalice is, because that's all Game of Thrones is. Here, drink from this. Aha, you fucking idiot, you drank from the poison chalice. We're not friends at all and you've just been poisoned. You're dying, you idiot. Fuck you, I rule. Oh no, the roof caved in and I'm also dead. Well, the poison chalice is also a, um, a specific metaphor for you're getting something which appears to be of great value, but is actually going to kill you. Which it may well feel for Kevin Smith like that's what he had at this point. Yikes. Eternia, as it turns out, is the first ever planet and a nexus point at the centre of all things. And if it goes down without magic, the whole place is going to collapse. The whole system, the universe. Making this very much a case of being masters of said universe. Everything. Which always felt like... I think we talked about this on, in 2016. I was like, you know, Master of the Universe seems like you're aiming a little bit high. This guy can stretch his neck more than most people. He's not master of much of anything. I have a periscope that can do the same thing. I do like Mechanek, but he is master of very little. However, here, it turns out there's quite a lot of important stuff. And that's the other thing. They always kept Skull's secrets secret. They never told you what they were. Here, they don't tell you everything they are, but they do suggest, oh, no, 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 like, this is, like, a really significant central crux point between, like, it's, it's where all the ley lines of universal energy converge in this ancient castle. And we built a castle on it, so yeah. we wouldn't forget where it was. Pretty much. 
pretty much. Now, Teela is tasked with recovering the two halves of the Sword of Greyskull, which have now departed to the underworld of Subternia and the Valhalla Savage Land of Pre-Ternia. Teela expresses serious doubts in her ability to pull this off, but is encouraged by, of all people, Cringer, who was voiced by Stephen Root. And he has this wonderful little speech where like, everyone's sort of arguing back and forth and they're the most important you know, people in the world at this stage, maybe in the universe. And then this pathetic little tiger sort of comes along and says, do you know who gave me the name Cringer? It was you. And he tells Teela that she's got to be brave, that this feels overwhelming and that he spent his whole life feeling overwhelmed, but this is something that needs to be done and that Adam knew that, which obviously hurts Teela because she's in a don't mention Adam to me ever mood. Now, you could say that uh, uh, it was commented upon that Teela was very dislikable. They didn't like her character and that she's an angry woman. Um, She's grieving. And she's grieving badly, and she's hurting people in the doing of that. And she's afraid, and she's feeling weak, and it's she's in a very bad place, which I think a lot of us can actually kind of relate to. Mm. And if you've never been in that way, and you've never needed help in that regard, you're lucky. Well done. Mm. Very. I hope you don't have to go through it. You. I think you were really onto something when you pointed out that she's she's Adam's bodyguard. Yeah. And she ain't got a stinking body to guard. Once dead, she has no place. No raison d'être. When she realizes he was He-Man, all of the use that she thought she had before that with, is yeah. yanked out from underneath her because she's been doing she a fake job really her whole life. Him. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. He could have looked after himself quite easily. To her mind, mm. um, obviously, it's not quite that way if you look at it from Adam's perspective. But she feels as though her use she's a, she's a support character mm. who suddenly had every element of the support she provided rendered pointless and pulled away from her. Now, I could um, start talking about how I, I, I'm not sure that Prince Adam would be particularly would be this level of. Uh, fascinating of uh, of a character to like it's difficult to imagine him possessing this much in in terms of uh, being able to stretch his range but as it turns out in way off in part two adam does return so there is merit to taking he-man out of the story in the same way that there was merit in removing luke skywalker from the force awakens so that all the other characters could shine Episode 3, The Most Dangerous Man in Eternia. This is a travel episode with the uneasy alliances formed between Evil Lynn and Teela. They go uh, on a boat across the Crystal Sea, which is a callback to earlier episodes. And it's it's one of those like neat comic booky things of like when Reed Richards has to hang out with Doctor Doom. And th- there's this kind of, oh, we don't see this very much. What are they going to say to each other? And as it turns out, quite a bit. They, they're quite good at poking at each other in their sore spots. They meet Duncan, played by Liam Cunningham, in Game of Thrones mode. He was Sir Davos Seaworthy. And he's no longer man-at-arms and helps them defend off Triclops, who started a cult. Like a cult that worships machinery. He's like, fuck magic, it's all about machinery. And he's voiced by Henry Rollins, which reminds me of the character he played in Batman Beyond, who was like, fuck machinery. And I realize I'm telling you, fuck machinery, 
on machinery, but after this point, fuck all machinery. You live in the future, dude. But then Merman turns up, and Merman's always been a pathetic joke in the uh, show. Like, he's like, wah, wah. Uh, in the uh, comic books, he's a massive coward. He-Man throws him in the sea, in the mud. He's rubbish. He was supposed to be called Seaman. Yeah. Like when they were making the toys, and then they realised that they couldn't do that, so they called him Merman yeah. instead. It's important to know that the actual toy manufacturer, like the toy ideas room, the melting pot, was just a big fucking boys' club. They they liked puns. Cocaine and pizza. <laughs> and cocaine pizza. Don't knock it till you've tried it. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, but yeah, Merman turns up and suddenly has all this theatrical gravitas. He's lost an eye, he's gotten rid of his his, uh, his armour, and he's like Davy Jones for the two minutes he's on screen. And he's played by Kevin Conroy in one of his final roles that's not Batman. And I was like, you accomplished the impossible, sir. Merman, release us at once. The Sea Leech has no time to hear your pitiful pleas for life. But I have enough time to hear you die. You traitorous trout. We fought side by side with Skeletor. And when Skeletor died, we could have taken control of Eternia. With you on the land and me in the sea, we could have ruled the universe together. Without Skeletor's raging ego and with no He-Man to stand in our way, we could have taken control. But no, you forgot all about Merman. Now you'll never forget Merman! And we never did. This thing has been review bombed to get mostly one star on Google. Can we have just a fucking smidgen of balance, please? How can you not love what was just happening? It beggars belief! I look at all those one star reviews and I say, no. I really wish there was more Merman. <laughs> I really do. Like, he would have been a great character to keep around, but such as it is. I did say that uh, I think King Randor should have been voiced by uh, mm. Conroy, especially as Skeletor is played by Mark Hamill. Uh, but they got a Batman. They also, at this point, recruit Orko, who has been dying and caught in severe depression since the catastrophe which killed Magic. And as it turns out, later we find that he's the last of the Trollen race. He's... Very much inspired in this updated incarnation by a character from Final Fantasy IX that anyone who's played it will never forget called Vivi Ornata, a little black mage who is kind of stuck in an existential crisis. And Orko is sad. And he's one of the best things in part one. It's, uh, yeah, he's always been this irritating dude who's like, oh, no, I dropped pudding on my head. Mmm, troll and tapioca. And, like, he's there for the kids. He's the goofy thing to make sure that everyone knows no one's going to get really hurt. Because mm. he's the little, you know, he's as a kid. As long Orko's still making jokes, yeah. then you know that everything's going to be all right in the end. And Orko is not making jokes here. That's how we know everything's really bad. They eventually reach the gates of the underworld, which are particularly foreboding, leading to episode four, The Land of the Dead. <clears throat> now, in the underworld, presided over by Scare Glow, voiced by the candy man himself, Tony Todd. The adventurers have to face their greatest fears in order to recover the dark half of the sword and escape to Preternia. That's heaven, folks. And this escape comes at a terrible cost. One of the best episodes. I love any 
scenario where characters we talked about this during Dungeons and Dragons where characters are, are confronted with their worst fears and are left alone and terrified and have to face up to them because it, it brings out who they really actually are and Scareglow is not a character who was ever in the cartoon. He was one of the last figures made in the Monsters of the Universe line. Obviously, we all wanted to see what Scareglow could do. And even the 2002 show didn't do that. But this made him the Freddy Krueger of the underworld. Like, he turns up and is like, yes, your fear feeds me. He's Pennywise. He's Scarecrow from Batman. Everything about him is te- is terrifying. And he's glowing in the dark like his figure did. And, you know, he, he just the action figure himself is like, welcome to the Skeleton League. I am, in fact, the leader. Skeletor didn't pay his fees. And it's not particularly scary. Tony Todd somehow makes it so, and he makes this place seem inescapable and insurmountable. And the person who finally stands up to him as they're trying to escape is Orko, who gives his life for his friends. And it's almost impossible not to well up, even if you've never given a toss-up, even if this is your first Masters of the Universe ever, because of the performance that's already been turned in. Griffin Newman was in The Tick and Blank Check with Griffin and David, the uh, movie podcast. And he accomplishes the impossible by making Orko one of the best characters in a cartoon. And throughout all this, I could have been playing you clips, but I don't want to do that. I don't want to say, listen to this, it sounds really good. I want you to watch it. I want you to see the artistry at work and get to these places organically. That's rare for me, but it's rare that we cover something nobody's bloody seen. Conroy gets one because... We salute you. So in episode five, The Forge at the Forest of Forever, now in Preternia, mourning the loss of Orko, an overlooked companion of theirs, Roboto, who I didn't mention up until this point, works to reforge the sword with its light half. So he's got to put together the purple half of the sword with the golden half of the sword. I mean, this relates back to the very, very early uh, He-Man toys, pre the uh, cartoon, where if you put He-Man and Skeletor's swords together, they kind of matched and, and fit like a yin-yang, and you could use that combined sword as a, a double key to open the drawbridge, the jawbridge to Castle Greyskull. You can see right up there on my shelf, I got the uh, Origins Castle Greyskull, that mechanism still works. So this is a nice little callback to that. Speaking of nice little callbacks, they meet ancient heroes enjoying an exciting eternal rest, including He-Ro, who was going to be the successor to He-Man before they eventually developed it into uh, New Adventures of He-Man, the sci-fi version. It was going to be like, we're going to come back in 88 with He-Ro. He's like uh, um, the greatest, most powerful magician in the universe, or sorcerer in the universe, magic user. He had a staff and all of that. There was also... Uh, like in some versions of things, Hero 2 was going to be, in fact, King He-Man's son. So, like, his literal blood successor. So, it's like, you've got to say this is okay. He is of the bloodline. And fans are very good at accepting bloodlines. They're very obedient like that. Because despite it being 2023, current year argument, we still, on some level, believe in the divine right of kings. Blood supersedes deeds. It's fascinating how serfdom is in our DNA somehow. 
It's not. People are just convinced it is. Yeah, uh, but there's also uh, uh, there's like, like a, a, a Russian sorceress that uh, Willow recognised as Cree Summer, the voice of um, the princess in Atlantis: The Lost Empire, which was impressive as hell. Uh, there's also Wandar, that's the bread he-man. I think he's kind of playing this Conan-looking uh, version of him, but in the uh, mythological outfit that he was apparently sent out with uh, enough purchases of Wonder Bread. And King Greyskull, voiced by Dennis Haysbert. Now, it's important to note here, folks, King Greyskull was introduced, and I think we would have mentioned this back in 2016 as well, but this is noteworthy, it was introduced at the tail end of the 2000X cartoon, the 2000X series, as being the ancestor of He-Man, who died trying to protect Castle Greyskull and his lady love, the sorceress of that period, uh, and his power went into the sword. So when He-Man summons the power of Greyskull, he's summoning the power of this dude. That's going into Adam, and then he's growing to be super big and buff and bulky. So it's actually coming from a guy, which is kind of fascinating. And the fact that they've got him here, there was a big... There was an action figure of him. It was the first of the uh, Masters of the Universe classics. And it's like, yes, we are finally moving forward with this obscure choice. And Dennis Haysbert plays a black dreadlocked early He-Man King fucking Greyskull, which I was very pleased to see. I also, in the researching of the recent toy lines, found out about Sun Man, which is, yeah? Do you, do you know about this one? You heard about this? <laughs> I'm trying to remember if you've told me about it. I did. It was a, rings a couple of days ago. Um, this stems from a mother who went with her child to try to find a He-Man toy who wasn't white. And at this point, Clamp Champ hadn't been tokenistically tossed out onto the shelves. They wanted a black He-Man. And the kid was so crestfallen that the mother, Wyla Eason, who specialized in economics, decided, okay, so what would it cost to put together a toy line? And Sun Man became this pioneering black superhero of the early to mid-80s, and uh, there was a toy line made as she, she sort of made inroads in Mattel. And because she specialized in economics, I think she just sort of like br brought numbers to the table and was very serious about it. People were like, fuck, she must have done her homework, as opposed to sort of just coming in all emotional and impassioned and absolutely filled with righteous indignation. They listen to people who understand money, interestingly enough. And uh, Sun Man had a bunch of uh, other friends of colour, and it was kind of a, a, an uplifting toy line. It was small, and it was beloved by the few people for whom this meant the world. But more recently, she got uh, talking to a, uh, a guy from Mattel, and they went back and forth, and eventually it became, hey, why don't you bring Sun Man across, and we'll put him in our both our Origins line and our Masterverse line, so you get the, like classic 80s version looking version with these weird goofy wings coming out of his chin and this the much more statuesque version with these beautiful archangel glowing sun wings and i'm just i was just really pleased to see that happening the diametric opposite of uh video when i was looking for king grayskull advising uh toy collectors of how they could unrace swap King Grayskull, back to a white dude. And I was like, you insecure little trouser worms. What the fuck is wrong with you? Moving swiftly on, 
Either way, King Grayskull helps them to uh, put the sword together, and unfortunately, to to do so requires Roboto to make a great sacrifice. He's got to forge this thing, but the explosion as it happens is going to kill him. And there's another really touching scene. Roboto's just like, I am a robot, domo arigato, in the original show. But here he's much more like Baymax, and he has a kind of a soft robot voice which immediately appeals to kids, very specifically. Oh, Justin Long. Willow, uh, he of Tusk. Willow (laughs) really warmed to Roboto immediately. And... There's a heartbreaking moment when he says, you know, that he's scared of dying to Tila as he's been, you know, for a robot, mortally damaged. And she apologizes to him and thanks him for for his great sacrifice. And he says, no, no, you don't understand. The fact that I am afraid means you succeeded. The me having enough feelings in me indicates that I was alive. But among these ancient Eternian champions, we also meet the spirit of Prince Adam, who has come to Preternia for his eternal rest, having been disintegrated as He-Man, having given his life for Eternia to try to save everyone. But then on finding that Eternia is dying still anyway, he decides to come back, but is warned that if he dies again, he can never return to Preternia and his soul will disappear into the ether. And Adam, being a hero, says, I, yep, I will, I'll accept that. And they also note that Adam is the only one of them who's not Whoa, muscle power. He came back in his, and this is their words, not ours, his lesser form. There's a humility about Adam, which actually makes him quite refreshing. There's, it's difficult to really latch, up, latch this version of him back to the whole cringer version of Adam, uh, you know, played you know, wonderfully and, and, and amiably by John Irwin. In today's story, Elena tried taking a magic potion which she thought would help her. Well, she found out there aren't any magic potions. And you know what? There aren't any magic drugs either. Anytime you take one from anybody but your parents or your doctor, you're taking a very big chance. You're gambling with your health, maybe even your life. Drugs don't make your problems go away. They just create more. Oh, He-Man, don't even get me started on the opiate crisis. At the time of recording, John Irwin is still alive, 86 years young. But Linda Gary, who played Teela, died in 1995. She was only 50 years old. She also played the Sorceress, Queen Marlena, Shadow Weaver, Glimmer, and Madame Raz. In today's story, I went in search of my mother. I found her, but I also found something else. That the man who had cared for me since I was a baby, who loved me as he would his own daughter, was just as much my father as any parent could be. And so whether they are someone we were born to or whether they chose us to adopt, it doesn't matter. The ones who protect us and teach us and love us, they are the ones we call mother and father. And they deserve the same kind of love from us. Until next time. And as cheesy as the moral of the show, now we know and knowing is half the battle, end caps were, even though they were created to deflect 
accusations from concerned parents groups that these cartoons were all just about violence, which is laughable when you look at the actual minimal level of hurt inflicted upon anyone. Alan Oppenheimer, the guy who played at Man at Arms in the original Skeletor, confided on the Netflix making of Revelation, because he plays Moss Man in this, that he has had at least one fan of Masters of the Universe confide in him that the philosophies expounded here saved their life. A very long time ago, a wonderful document came into being. It was called the Magna Carta. It was the first big step in recognizing that all people were created equal. But even though more laws have been passed to guarantee that, there are still those who try to keep others from being free. Fortunately, Queen Samana realized in time that only by working together could her city be saved. And that's the way it should be, together. Right? Right. Way to sneak some socialism in under the Reagan-era wire. Then comrades come rally. Sorry. Okay. As for the rest of them, as for the rest what of them. What was that? What? That's the internationally. But this version uh, of Adam, uh, Chris Wood, again goes beyond Cam Clark's Adam from the uh, 2002 series. And actually is really kind of... He ponders his existence, and he he's kind of Superman. He's got that kind of nobility going on there. Like, when you strip away, he doesn't have to lie anymore. You actually get to see the real guy. And you realize that He-Man has been this guy all along, and that Adam is just a du- you know the same dude but covered in muscles. I think one of the... One of the trickier elements of the original He-Man in the original cartoon, Mm. uh, in comparison with his alter ego, is that it's never entirely clear which of them Mm. is the core person, because they look... Could I speak to Adam? So... There is no Adam, only only He-Man. Because they look so similar... Apart from the fact that He-Man is a bit more tanned and wears different clothes, less clothes, in fact, there's there's a bit of a Clark Kent Superman thing going on in the sense of He-Man doesn't wear glasses, especially he puts on a pair of pink pants and that's it. Everybody's baffled, Um, (laughs) but they were purple. As a result, it kind of there's there's a sense of Adam being a fake persona that He Man puts on in order to like a Clark Kent, yeah. Um, his uh, suspicion of a bumbling. who he really is, yeah. In the 2000 yeah. X version, he really was just a kid who had no idea what was going on and was kind of like when he becomes He Man, he is automatically given more gravitas and maturity, mm-hmm. which. Uh, in this other new show, the one aimed at children, the uh, he's kind of just a goofball kid who just gets muscles just gets and is still the muscled, same. But is still goofball a goofball kid, yeah. Which is also sweet, but it, it's it is kind of entertaining to compare and contrast how different creators take that dual identity um, and interpret it. But the significance of Adam being the the core person ties in with something he says later on about where the the he-man persona comes from mm. and i found the concept that he had chosen to be adam in the afterlife not because he didn't see himself as a hero but because he was more connected with himself than maybe the others were. Mm. That for them, the hero face they wanted to get away from was the their... one that they yeah. that, that they felt was their true self. Adam, it almost seems like he'd be quite happy as Adam forever, 
Mm. And never having been He-Man, but having been given the opportunity to use He-Man as a tool to protect his friends, he'll embrace it and do so. Effectively, He-Man is merely something that comes with the sword. Yeah. Huh. See what I mean, folks? Although they twist on that as well. Yeah. So they return to Eternia and they return to the uh, the depths of Castle Greyskull. I haven't mentioned this, although I did earlier to you. I really love how the internal chamber of Castle Greyskull is not just a dungeon, it's a beautiful garden. It's this enclosed green space, tended to by Mossman, who gets flambéed by Skeletor in the first episode. This is, like, this is a passing of the Masters of the Universe torch. It just didn't have to be quite so literal. You didn't have to torch Moss Man. But I love how Kevin Smith went, well, just make him a swamp thing. And it's not even new. Like, that was in the 2000X show. So, like, he was much more of a kind of a nature spirit in that. In fact, racking my brains, I'm not even sure Moss Man showed up in the cartoon. Right in, folks, if he, if he did. Moss Man was basically just the Beast Man toy, but coloured green and then flocked with that, like, fake grass. <laughs> Stuff. But in practice here, we're looking at Swamp Thing. But yeah, they come back to uh, Castle Grayskull with, uh, with, to this garden with the sword now intact. And uh, Adam's like, okay, so let's uh, you know fix this. Then Skeletor leaps out of Evil Lynn's body. Evil Lynn's been with them this whole time. She's been kind of sparring with Teela a little bit. But also she takes off her helmet and like lets her long white hair blow in the wind, which is referencing back to uh, like uh, Battlegrounds or some uh, a particular episode where... Uh, Evil Lynn did take off her helmet and t- turned out she had white hair in the filmation version and did actually, I think this was written by Paul Dini, did start to talk about herself in a bit more detail. And it's like, we're just trying to add some dimensionality to this toy commercial. But it turns out Skeletor's been body jacking her this whole time and just waiting for his moment to strike. And strike he does, stabbing Prince Adam with a spear to effectively kill him again. But this time, with his soul having no hope of uh, ever going back to Preternia, and that's where episode five, part one, ends rather unwisely, I think, <laughs> because it left us on a big cliffhanger. Oh, what's going to happen next? And it's like, dude, that's the same cliffhanger as episode one. He-Man's d- double. You must be double dead now. But now Skeletor has the power of Skull and has turned into Skelegod. And it's, you know, it's upping the stakes and it's a really good kind of, I suppose, Empire Strikes Back, like even worse ending. No, that's not true. It's impossible. Literally at one point in this, Mark Hamill literally says that. Okay, folks, we're at the halfway mark now. After this point, we're going to be talking about the second part of Revelation that came out several months after the first. So I guess while I'm playing you some music, let's thank our sponsors for this week, who are, of course, every single one of our patrons. And if you're at the $15 tier, you get a shout-out. So a big thank you to Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alejandro Vargas, Alex Brewington, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolf, Kieran Dutchler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, you bumbling boob, 
Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Finma Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameson Wright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clausen, Joseph Gluck, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Marty Palmeyer, Matthew A. Siebert, Michael Haskell, Sean Doran, Toby Skills Jungius, Tim Wazenski, Timothy Green, Tom Painter, Timu Hillis Hayo, Sarah Montgomery, and Mistress of Snake Mountain, Kat Esman. Sorry. <laughs> So, six months later, in December, in episode six, Cleaved in Twain, we start with a lengthy flashback wherein the sorceress bids a tearful goodbye to Duncan, her lover, and their new baby girl, Teela. This confirms a lot of implied but never confirmed stuff from the original cartoon, which almost certainly got I don't know if it was I think it was referenced but never absolutely confirmed because Man at Arms was like bandaged up and you couldn't tell it was definitely him in the 2002 cartoon probably got confirmed in a comic somewhere but ultimately comics are just tryouts for the actual future law that's uh, that's impending we have to accept that folks like if we like uh, Ghostbusters or Thundercats the comic books we buy on them are the cheapest way they can tell stories and give them to fans. Absolutely. So ultimately, the whole thing is just fanfic, um, which is fine. Fanfic's great. Frankly, the law for most 80s kids' comics and beyond is very, very stretchy. Mm. Like, it it can be expan- expanded or retracted to cover as much or as little as you want. And also, if you look back on the original cartoon, they were anti-law. L-O-R-E. They did not want to make anything beyond the initial premise solid. So for 130 episodes, it was just incident. Like, there was no development, no character. It kept resetting. And Willow noted, well, I, asked, I asked them today when we were having a walk and we went down to a newly opened Wendy's in the high street, uh, which was heaving, so we went to Burger King. I said, why did you like Revelation? And they said, because the original shows were just like constant reset at the end of every single one. It feels like they just wanted everyone to be able to watch any one episode and nothing would change in that episode or to the next episode, which kind of infuriates Will. Will likes long-form storytelling and character development. And frankly, I think you know, so do we. But obviously they kept it, like not even episodic like that, just like... Each one's a, 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 a mini escapade that doesn't change the world at all and nothing shifts mm. because it made it easier to sell the toys. You just mm. have a character show up and you go, hey, Ram Man, you can ram things with your head. Also, you can buy him, kids. Do you know what the morals at the end were originally for? To convince worried mothers that this violent show was actually helping children to grow as people. Correct. And yeah. so that they would allow their kids to watch the adverts. Yeah. The it- toy commercials. In one of the uh, um, the making of um, shows, a sort of an after-party show on uh, Netflix that is awkwardly filmed and has everyone standing around at a studio holding hastily edited uh, mid-COVID uh, Skype interviews with the voice cast, many of whom had to Skype in their performances. 
Uh, I'm assuming another complaint would be that this is like one of those uh, casualties of COVID. Um, and I, I honestly wish that the everything that had been made during COVID had been this effective. As I said before, Alan Oppenheimer um, mentioned that he had an adult collector come up to him and tell, confide in him quietly that he, at the age of seven or eight, was feeling suicidal, but that the trashy He-Man cartoon from 1983 made him feel more like a person. And he was able to get over this very dark, un, like impossibly dark for someone that young phase in his life. Mm. And it just, Oppenheimer vouching this thing, which he probably hadn't cleared beforehand, the entire studio goes like, oh shit, it's gotten dark. And they struggle really quickly to move on swiftly. And But it, it felt very genuine and true. And this old, old, old man who's not going to be with us for much longer at all, just sort of reflecting back on his life. And, you know, as far as he was concerned, it was a studio job. You take the job, you turn up, you do Skeletor, and you make him nasal! And then you get told by people that you kept them alive. <sighs> so anyway. In the 1983 show, there were one or two episodes where it was implied that the sorceress might be Teela's mother. And... Like, at the end, she was like, your mother loves you very, very much, just as Teela's walking away and can't actually hear her, and she's crying. And it's like, oh, my God, is she? Isn't she? And it's like, yes, she is. That's what that means. <laughs> but here, they finally were able to confirm it. Again, it might, I can't remember if it was in the 2002 show. I will be going back and watching that again, but it was far more focused on action than it was in character development. I can actually understand why later creators didn't want to step on the moral at the end of that episode whereby foster parents, adoptive parents, step-parents, guardians, grandparents, aunts and uncles, godparents, and very specifically, those not related to you by blood should absolutely be recognised if they've raised you well. And it might seem that this would be walking that back by going, see, see, they were actually blood-related all along. But that doesn't take away the fact that Duncan did raise Teela with love and affection and attention. And her ascension to sorceress never once gets attributed to the fact that it's because the sorceress that we know is her mother. She has earned the right to move forwards. I would have been fine with the idea of Duncan just raising the sorceress's child, but, you know, yep, they are. It specifically means that Duncan very much loves the sorceress and she has to leave this family to go and be the sorceress. This is her calling. Mm -hmm. And she says that this is one of the hardest things she ever has to do. Uh, at, but ultimately, she uh, it's, it's, it's very Jedi. It's very, I must surrender myself to this calling. Mm -hmm. the, the line of... Duncan being Teela's birth father, but having to effectively set himself up as her adoptive father. Mm. I, I get what you mean about the obsession with the bloodlines, but for me, that had more of a sense of a particularly unpleasant practice that used to happen a lot mm. in families where there was an unmarried mother... Um, where she might have to give up her child and nobody was allowed to know it was her child, but then find herself in a circumstance where she's allowed to raise the child as a nurse or a nanny or a servant or, or something along those lines. And for me, it sort of had that sense of how there's so many people in this 
world who are in service, who have given something of themselves up to a higher calling, a higher power. And Duncan always struck me as being very much in that vein, that he has dedicated himself to this role, the role of being man-at-arms, the role of being Teela's boss, adopted father, trainer, mentor, everything that he lays on the line for Adam, including protecting the, the secret that only a handful of people are supposed to know. Um, obviously, it's, it's, it's there in spades with the sorceress as well, and, and in this they develop it into what Teela's ended up giving up without even knowing she was giving it up. And how they work all of that in and still manage to make all of the characters rounded and have flaws and make mistakes and get angry and get resentful of all of this service that they're supposed to, to carry with them. Um, Which it, is it far all... better than just, I'm a paragon, I can just completely devote myself Absolutely, to this. Yeah. If everyone was like that, it would feel inhuman. Mm, yeah, but the, the, the uh, family triangle of the sorceress, Duncan and Teela, to me, seemed to play very much into that overall theme. Mm. Now, back in Eternia, things go from bad to worse to somehow even worse than worse. Skeletor now being Skelly God, having absorbed the power of Greyskull, kills the sorceress. Teela's mother, who in her last breath manages to teleport the badly wounded Adam, Teela, Andra, and Cringer back to the palace. Adam isn't dead yet. Skeletor then makes evil Lynn the new sorceress with this sexy bat costume, and it becomes apparent that she didn't know he had hitched a ride in her body all these months. Like, there's this kind of, you used me. Uh, And, you know, she's given power, but she doesn't quite know what to say or what to feel about this. Uh, it's also quite possible that she was kind of getting used to having friends. Mm. It's a little bit of a, like, she betrays them at the end because Skeletor's just seized power again. It's a little bit of a Zuko at the end of book two. Yeah. Well, I think ultimately, absent Skeletor, she was starting to... Evelyn is very much presented as somebody who's been in an abusive relationship for years. Mm. And the the her abuser having been removed from the scene she is given an opportunity to grow and develop in ways that he prevented and clamped down on for a very, very long time. Mm. And at this point, his reappearance means that she has a choice. She can either draw all of that growth back into herself or she can maintain it and fight against his attempts to re-establish the constrictions and boundaries that he has around her and her choice is very disappointing yes but it it's not just one choice to immediately serve no i would say evil then actually has the greatest arc throughout this whole thing mm. if, like if nothing else her costume changes at least four times mm. yeah absolutely and you are totally right that it's not just one decision it's uh, you can see in her facial expressions and her body language it's okay what do i do now okay so that's happened so what do i do now it just is she's taking these tiny little steps that ultimately end up putting her back in skeletal's orbit and they're not just let's change her costume so we can sell a different action figure although that's definitely not hurting mattel uh it's each of these costume changes 
equates to a new stage in not only her life, but specifically her outlook on life. Absolutely. You, in, in particular, there is a distinction between the outfits that she chooses for herself mm. and the outfits that other people, particularly Skeletor, choose for her. And the bat costume is very much her point of Hamlet-like indecision. Yeah. I'm comparing Evil Lynn to Hamlet here, folks. Her name is Evil, Evil Lynn. Lynn. Doesn't exactly scream multi-layered, does it? Teela manages to use strange new powers to heal Adam's spear wound, but Skeletor appears, looking to finish them off. Adam finally tests out a theory, and he calls upon the power of Greyskull without the sword. Episode 7, Reason and Blood. Adam has now transformed into the Savage He-Man, a nod to his barbarian roots in the original mini-comics. If you look at the, like, the first page, he's just sort of like this dude in a loincloth. He's, I've got the figure right there. That spear, that was that. But he's not just a, like a grim barbarian. This version is a flesh-coloured, incredible Hulk with long blonde hair. He's so Hulk, I was like, is that Fred Tattashore? The guy who like insists that if you're going to do an animated Hulk... I must be present. It, well, it's not Fred Tattashore. Like, it's, it's a simple casting agent choice. Well, get the Hulk then. Like, he is the voice of the Hulk. He's like the Dave Golds Gonzo of the Hulk. It's just that Dave Golds was there from day one playing Gonzo. Yeah. So... He bounds, he does that Hulk jump off into the countryside after he fights Skeletor and actually goes toe to toe with him. He's strong enough, but being Hulk, he's not focused. Teela tries to appeal to him only for his rage to intensify when she mentions his father who is camped nearby. And it's like, why does, why is savage He-Man angry at King Randor? And he bounds on over and King Randor comes out of his tent and greets his son seemingly unafraid. And this is one of those scenes where just all of this stuff gets reinterpreted as, as that uh, Adam has harbored secret feelings of inadequacy from his father and a sense that he's never been proud of this boy and Randor not at all afraid of the Hulk embraces his son and says that he's been always proud of him and it's heartwarming and also delivering a speech that uh, I feel like a, a hell of a lot of the audience needed to hear and Adam the beast is stilled it's not a beauty that killed the beast it's the whole paternal thing that uh, needs to be dealt with here it's not the power of the father it's a man expressing vulnerability to his son which is the opposite of all that pent-up fury redefining masculinity as not a closed fist but open arms knock it off creed that was a good analogy and Adam uh, returns to his lesser self, who is actually a pretty decent dude. Episode 8, The Gutter Rat. Following on from similar behaviour in the last episode, Skeletor continues to needle the new sorceress evil Lynn, reminding her that he found the mage on the street as a gutter rat and raised her up to be his second in command. This is that abusive behavior you're talking about. He's like, I made you evil. No, not obviously not the Oppenheimer voice. I made you evil, Lynn. What were you before? Nothing but a worthless street rat. There's a lot of Skeletor in this second part and Mark Hamill is having a fucking blast. It's like, 
it, he fits the role so naturally that you start wrecking your brains and think, when did he play him before? And then you remember he never played Skeletor before. So I'm just so pleased he got the opportunity to do this. Meanwhile, both a captive Duncan who has uh, made up with Teela and but is now mourning the death of the sorceress, his beloved, and surprisingly as well, Beast Man tell Evil Lynn that she should take the power of Greyskull for herself. They alert her to the fact that Skeletor's using her, but he is just using her like a tool. She's the actual power, which Evil Lynn initially scoffs at. Um, I, I thought that she'd start getting Lady Macbeth at this point, but she's actually kind of a more of a plain-dealing villain. Like She, she doesn't have that measure of... of Cersei Lannister subterfuge in the same way. And it's it's wonderful to hear Lena Headey kind of grapple with this character who shows one thing, but is clearly feeling another in the actual animation of it. And then Skeletor, possibly unwisely, shows her the vastness of the universe and the emptiness of it drives Lynn into an existential crisis. Yes. It's this vast blackness they this is something i find really fascinating actually is that when skeletor and evil lynn look out into space they're looking at the same thing yeah and although she's not present i feel like if the sorceress was there looking out at the same at, at this vista she would see the same thing as well but all of them have a very different take on it Skeletor sees the beauty of the universe as chaos and decides that it's up to him to use that chaos for the acquisition and application of power. Yeah. That there is no core order to any of this, therefore he can do whatever the hell he, long he likes. There is only power and those too weak to seek it. He's very Voldemort. Yeah, indeed. There's something there that they're not seeing, and what Evelyn sees in all of this chaos is something that terrifies her, an emptiness, a void that no amount of power or goodness or anything can overcome. Episode 9, Hope for a Destination, which I swear to God is a Four line from Four Non Blondes, what's, go what's up? 25 years, I'm a lofty steel Trying to get up that great big healer of hope for a destination. This is where Lynn makes herself supremely powerful in the most supreme power in all the universe, stripping Skeletor of his power. And I'd forgotten how she does this. It's a honey trap. She sort of whispers to Skeletor, can we do that other thing you like? And he's like, ah, oh, let's take it to Bone Town, shall we? Oh, he's, he's Mark Hamill. Oh, Lynn, oh, you're rather naughty today. And, um... <laughs> Yeah, she, she kind of gets him to discard his abilities and then picks them back up and casts him down. She's like, if we do it while you're all hopped up on sword power... You'll make me you'll explode. Kill me. <laughs> so um, dial that back a bit and yeah. then let's go. And then she becomes uh, her 
ultimate form, which is like a supremely powerful super sorceress. So imagine if uh, the uh, the lady who dresses up as a bird all the time also took He-Man's power as well. So she's also super muscly as well. So it's it's really, it's neat to see her go through this now I am a goddess thing. Meanwhile, Skeletor winds up forming an unlikely alliance with He-Man in order to take back Skull from the now mad Lin. She has seen the universe beginning with the death of the falcon god Zor, and this this happens insofar as she's at a pool in a savanna, and there's a weird little purple ram drinking, and that's obviously Skeletor, but obviously Skeletor is tapped into a power that goes way back deep into shadow, and then the falcon Zor swoops across the lake, and does it pluck a serpent down? From- yes. Okay. And the serpent bites the falcon, who then falls into the lake screaming and dying. And from that comes the Big Bang. But Lin focuses on the treachery and the shadow and the death of this imagery. And she despairs at the absence of a grand design. Effectively, Lin finds out there's no god, there's no plan, we are all just doing what we can, and frankly, no one knows what they're doing. Lin tears open a portal to Subternia, calling forth legions of the dead to do battle with King Randor's approaching army. Episode 10, the last one, comes with everything you see here, which is... taken off the packaging from the... uh... I think it's taken off the commercial for uh, uh, at least Castle Greyskull. Castle Greyskull sold separate. Yeah. (laughs) I think, honestly, I could be wrong on this. There probably wasn't a big battle scene outside the gates of Castle Greyskull that in any way equates to all of those big battle scenes that were trying to sell you the action figures ever in any other He-Man production, and this one finally delivers it. And it's also noteworthy that at the beginning, they've got land sharks, they've got, I think, rotons are there, the Skelcons are there. I don't know if the Skelcons were in the 83 show, I haven't watched it for a long while. They were in the Ladybird books, though. They were like... Skeleton, Skeletor's little goat boys who help him out a bit. They've got these ram skulls. They're really creepy. So like, there's these deep pulls left, right, and center on this. It's fucking nerdvania. And I put this to you folks. If this show was denied release, there would be petitions out the wazoo to get these toys from Mattel and to get this show with its mature themes aired. Like, if they were told... Basically, this is what was going to happen. In the first episode, He-Man was going to die. How metal is that? Being told that, they'd go, yeah, that's metal. We should have had this. This is the grown-up He-Man we've always wanted. All of these complaints would be null and void because they would be being denied this thing. Same as if Americans were denied the vaccine and they were told no you've got to let the rest of the world have it instead they would be banged the same people who refused to take the vaccine would be banging on the doors of every hospital going where do we get these placebos they're contrarian like that it's weird it's so weird isn't it like this is a embarrassment of riches. This is gift after gift on a plate to all these bearded 40-year-old Masters of the Universe men. And I've heard these chuckling, cheerful dads with beards talking about how much they love Masters, and, and the ones that sort of covered the Masterverse line have sort of steered clear of making any kind of judgment call on the show, but they do seem to express joy at, at like, badass figures and, uh, and, and these things being featured in the cartoons at long last. 
So I don't know. Again, it's not up, it's not up to us to in- interpret their various responses. I do, however, think that fandoms shoot themselves in the foot. Because if you complain enough, they stop making the things you actually want them to make. Remember when all those guys shat their britches because the Thundercats raw cartoon looked like Adventure Time and was daft? Well, they raged so much that it got quietly taken off the air and is available nowhere now. Have we had any Thundercats anything since then? No. Big. Fucking. Clap. Well done, guys. And I saw a few episodes of that show. I had to look far and wide for them. It is not for me at all, but it did have the chance of keeping the Thundercats name alive and actually fresh in the heads of little kids. Now it's gone back into hibernation, maybe never to return. This is the double-edged sword, by the way, of, oh, everything's an IP, everything's got to be a sequel or a remake or an adaptation. If we don't do that, and it's not readily available in hard copy, and it's definitely not available to stream, it dies. It goes away. Forever. We don't get it back. Younger people don't get it at all. Do you know what Thundercats is right now if you look for the most activity on the internet? It is a series of premium collector-focused action figures made by Super 7. I have a bunch myself. These are aimed at 40 to 50 year olds who can afford to spend $55 plus shipping on an action figure of Pumra, the puma disguise that Mumra went into for one episode, or repainted, remodeled versions of the animated look that looked like the original basic ass LJN toys. We men of Generation X have laid claim to these. They are our things, no one else may have them. And only we have the fucking disposable income to afford them. I just don't like other people touching my things! Back to episode 10 comes with everything you see here, which is an almighty battle. Beastman defends Lin because he always uh, held a torch for her and he turns into a giant beast, which I said makes him beast beast. 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 Yes. Tila is kind of like takes a step sideways into another world and is offered the powers of the sorceress by the spirit of her own mother, whose name is Tila Na. But the penalty is that she must separate herself from personal relationships and hole up in Castle Greyskull, protecting said power. Now, this is very familiar if you've ever seen The Empire Strikes Back. Mark Hamill's character of Luke Skywalker is told by Yoda that he has to become a Jedi, and to do that he has to forego all worldly things, including relationships, both romantic and friendly. And, in fact, just connections to just the outside rest of the world, that a monastic existence of absolute solitude is the only thing you can really depend upon if you're going to be in possession of such power. Mm. You're looking around the room, what are you looking for? I'm looking for an avatar figure that I can point at and go... Wait a few days, they're coming in the mail. Okay. But yes, the other <laughs> big one is Avatar Ang. when he goes to meet the guru, the guru tells him, you've got to let your friends go. If you're going to be the Avatar, that means cutting off all earthly relationships. It means a monastic existence of solitude, because only then can you be trusted as someone who transcends humanity to have this power. Which... 
disturbs Tila because she doesn't want to give this up. If she's going to be the sorceress, she wants to kind of do it her own way, which suggests maybe shaking things up as opposed to just going back to a repeat of Return of the Jedi and making everything just the way it's always been because that way we can keep selling figures over different time periods consistently and thoroughly. Meanwhile, the battle rages outside, and Li Evil Lin is battling both He-Man and Skeletor, until the backstabbing Skeletor, absolutely obsessed with murdering his enemy, turns on He-Man, and He-Man's like, what the, what are you even doing? Like, we are trying to accomplish this, and Skeletor's like, I just have to kill you. And the end of the Owl House, I'm not going to spoil this, but someone says that the difference between these two people, one of whom wants to believe that she's good because she wants to protect her friends and family, but isn't the person she's fighting also trying to protect people. Uh, the, the difference is, no, he's just obsessed with being the hero of his own story, with getting the recognition for doing this thing. And it made me realise that a lot of villains, you could level the question at them. If you were to step back from this particular crusade and give it to someone else so that it would get done and accomplished, and you knew that that person was actually more likely to be able to achieve it, would you? Would, for example, Skeletor say, Triclops, continue my quest. I'm, I'm unable to do this, but you must go and kill He-Man for me. And I feel like Skeletor would say, no, it must be me who kills He-Man. I feel like Joker would say, no, it must be me who... If, Joker if Batman's going to die... say, it must be me who It must be Batman. me. I feel like if Thanos was told, someone else can make this click, this snap for you, he'd say, no, no one's as wise as me. I'm the only person who can be trusted to do this properly. And if you asked Loki, he'd go... No, actually, I'd rather do this myself. It's for me. That doesn't make... It doesn't necessarily correlate with them being bad villains or weak villains, but it does correlate with a, a measure of empathy and how blinkered they are to the rest of the world. And Skeletor, like Voldemort, is unable to experience any kind of empathy. He's kind of sad like that. And at this point, when they are trying to save the fucking universe, he still just wants to kill He-Man. And it's like... Uh, it requires He-Man to pick up Skeletor and scream at him, THIS ISN'T ABOUT US! And then throw him into the stratosphere in a kind of, I'm done with you, just fuck off way. <laughs> Which is incredible. Who amongst us hasn't ever felt that? It's in keeping with He-Man's character because he'd always just throw Beast-Man in the mud or throw Skeletor in the mud. And it's like, I guess I'm going to have to throw you in the mud a long way away. <laughs> He still doesn't kill him. He just gets him away from the theatre of conflict. And this, it, it makes Skeletor feel like Lex Luthor here, someone who could be intelligent, could accomplish all kinds of good, but he is so fucking obsessed with this guy who he feels is getting recognition that he should be getting. Let's face it. Do you want to do all the things that he's doing to get that recognition, Lex? <sighs> I'd rather not. Can I just have the recognition? Which, of course, leads to the ending of Superman All-Star, which is quite astonishing. Anyway, Teela takes Lynn, still this supremely powerful sorceress, but now Teela is also a sorceress, back to the same beginning-of-time moment of figuratively seeing the death of Zor to look at it from a different perspective. And as Zor falls into this pool of water and everything explodes outwards, there's this phoenix-like resurrection, and it's not a case of there's just death and nothingness, and, and, and like there's no point in living because we're all going to die anyway. 
effectively what Tila shows her is the cyclical nature of life, death, and rebirth. And it's so simple. But there's this beautiful speech that Sarah Michelle Gellar um, churns out, which is that the universe only shows us what we bring to it. It's chaos and hurt and death. But it is everything else too. Seeing the pure magic of life and beauty and love blossoming, evil Lynn becomes not evil anymore and relinquishes her power, and willingly so. Teela steps up as the new sorceress with the new mantra that we have the power. And that would be almost the best part of this. It made me cry. But even better is, in opening Subternia and letting out the legions of the dead, she also lets out the master of the dead, who is Scareglow, still around. But in doing so, she also lets out Orko, who is now a white mage of supreme power and takes on Scareglow in this amazing gladiatorial moment. And as everyone's departing to go back to a, a state of Hades-like rest in the underworld, Orko starts to float away as well, saying goodbye to his friends again. And Lena Hedy's Lynn reaches out to just grab his ankle and pull him back down and say, not this time. And just, we get Orko back, which is just a supremely heartwarming moment. And this is what I mean about Lynn having this amazing arc. She goes from the beginning of b being pretty much the same lackey she, uh, you know, who's smarter than any of the rest of Skeletor's hoods, although that's not really saying much. She's up against Beastman and Trapjaw and Clawful. He's just a giant crab. But then she goes from there to, okay, so I've helped fuck the entire world up. What am I going to do now? I guess I could kind of stop things from getting worse. And then she finds out that Skeletor's been using her body. Read into that, whatever you like. Uh, and then gets a short time as, you know, you're going to be my sorceress. As Skeletor sees it, uh, he gets to strut around being Skelegod and in charge of everything. Effectively doing He-Man cosplay, but his way. Mm. With this sort of like big curly ram's horns. And yes, now I'm awesome. Why doesn't everyone give me all that recognition? And it never works for him. He's still obsessed with killing he No, well, he, one thing he seems to completely misinterpret about the, the relationship between the, the sorceress and the champion mm. is that he thinks the sorceress is, is He-Man's tool, that, that yeah. she is serving him. And he completely misses the fact that the champion is the servant of the sorceress. It's the, uh, it's the, the fundamental eternal goddess and dying and reincarnating mm. god who works as her right hand out in the world, but is ultimately carrying out her designs and her wishes and, mm. and her uh, requests. <laughs> And then she she herself ascends to be like, I'm the smartest, most powerful person in all creation now. And, and she gets to the very, very top. And it's just like she, she's trying to shake up the entire universe to almost give it some measure of intentionality. Like if there's no God, I'll be the God that does stuff. Mm -hmm. And it still doesn't make her happy. And ultimately it comes down to just what Teela's decision is is to stay as the sorceress, but to uh, maintain those friendships, maintain that closeness, not hang about in Skull all the time. Just be out in the world and be with people, because ultimately the cycle of just sitting on this power for millennia upon millennia always just leads to the same thing. 
the cycle needs to be broken. And well, it, Teela's it, the one to do that. It kind of has a sense because it's this it's this the way it's always been done. And because it is so I don't necessarily want to say it's easy because it's a big moment, but because it is so straightforward for uh, when the sorceress says to her, you will get this ability, but you have to sacrifice your ability to walk in the outside world and you have to sacrifice all the people who mean anything to you. Teela literally just goes, no. And she still gets the sorcerer's power. It's not as if that is then removed from her and she has to go through some great trial to get it back. It's almost like the way it's always been handed over is you have to give up everything in order to have this power. And everybody's always said, okay, then. And There's the rules they've written down. What if I break those rules? Well, no one's ever done it. What if I do? What if I do? But that idea of knowledge and... What it turns out it's the, more of a guideline. <laughs> what in times past would have been regarded as magical knowledge... Healing, for example, or understanding of how to help people interact without killing each other. If you jealously sit on that knowledge and go, well, I will make people come to me if they want this knowledge and this understanding, that contrasted with, no, we're going to take this knowledge and understanding and take it out in the world and distribute it to the people who need it. This is another fundamental thing that Skeletor cannot understand. He says to He-Man, you have all this power and yet you give it away. He can't fathom that. That ultimately He-Man helps people using that power. This is the inability to be able to see beyond your own nose, beyond your own concerns. Mm. And the like, well, why do people act like this? I wouldn't act like this. Indeed. And that... Seemingly, Skeletor's greatest punishment is just being, being himself. Being Skeletor, absolutely. But th- this this idea... I don't even have a nose! If you have <laughs> access to power, then in fact what you should do with it is <clears throat> hoard it. Ah! Uh, Speaking of which, talking about all of these themes, I've, I kept remembering moments like this that happened in Princesses of Power and just remember, that is a goddamn fantastic show as well and there's more of it potentially there's two principal reasons why i i think this one just edges it out one it's newer and i haven't just seen princesses of power two it's dealing with well three things it's dealing with things in a movie style context they're like two hours per part so it's really self-contained and they have the structure of a movie each time. They work really well over two nights. But three, they're concerning themselves with characters that I've only seen wafer-thin versions of before and actually really cared about. I didn't really know who Entraptor was. I didn't know who Scorpia was. And Catra was always, Meow, this is perfect! And I didn't see that at all in in the new Catra, which was great because the new Catra was fantastic. But here, somehow, they managed to stay true to the little basic ass characters that we'd been given and that we played with as i say we so many of our listeners were like dude i was born in 1995 but (laughs) 1995 you're having a laugh yeah but (laughs) but i'm my generation of bearded men who are now getting portly and bald. Did you shave last night just so that you wouldn't be a bearded man for doing this show? Ah, box <laughs> clever there. <laughs> Anyhow, they managed to take these basic-ass characters, remain true to them, and deliver 
a version of, of He-Man that when I was a kid, I wouldn't have appreciated, but now I'm an adult is, now I'm an adult, I don't know. I'm just a tall child who earns money, but it's storytelling on a level that I really deeply appreciate. And I like that the critics liked it as well. I really don't like that it seems to have kind of disappeared. I don't know if we even, people will listen to this episode because they're like, Master of the Universe Revolution. That's not even out yet. No, Revelation. It's, oh, forget it. You want a revolution? I want a revelation. So there's a sequel series coming, which we obviously haven't seen. We're recording this in April. Um, they've replaced Sarah Michelle Gellar with Supergirl, uh, Melissa Benoist. Benoist. Yeah. Uh, I'm excited to see where that goes. I think they scrimped on Merman. And we are <laughs> never going to be able to see... I mean, maybe get John Noble to come in and be this Merman of Gravitas. Because I'm, I'm intrigued there. But um, I would like, in years to come, for this to be something that people start to pick back up on and it's possible that it being constantly available right there on netflix means that it, it, it the second part can be watched and reevaluated, and and maybe some more positive takes can start filtering through this godforsaken algorithm where anger and fury and indignation at things that have been taken from us and lies that have been told to us become the most important things well this is this is the nature of the algorithm it does sift the anger and frustration and resentment and fury to the top because those are the things that get the most activity and get the most interaction from people. At the very end of this, Tila has also gone through a fantastic arc and is now the brand new sorceress in the togs of her mother, that very bird-like design, which is gorgeous white, orange and blue, very distinctive look. And she's reached a level of acceptance. It feels like, culturally speaking, in the stages of grief where we realise as a species that life isn't going to turn out the way we hoped it would, we're still in the anger, frustration, depression and bargaining stage. Oh, and fear. Let's not forget fear, folks. I do have, and feel free to strike this from the record if you want to, but I do have one very, very, very minor beef okay. with the very end of the show. Oh, yeah. It is the oh, yeah. shoehorning <laughs> of, hey, Adam had a thing for Teela this whole time, and Teela really likes him too. No, they have no no chemistry together Whoa, okay. whatsoever. They are like brother and sister. Okay. That is the relationship that I have always envisioned between Teela and Adam, and this show doesn't really give us anything to... Uh, to shift that. In fact, Teela quite clearly has had something going on with Andra the whole lead up to the to the to where they find themselves back at um, uh, Eternals. Andra gets to be the new man-at-arms and I'd like to say, I'm looking forward to seeing where she goes with this. Mm-hmm. But even if there was nothing more that followed on from this, even if this was like, Mattel were like, I've made a huge mistake, and then they cancelled any further things, this still stands as an excellent, maybe kind of ideally timed, because it requires a creator who was there as a child to then be able to take this stuff forward in the nerdy, correct way. I would never have expected from Kevin Smith this level of introspection, but well done. Mm. Yeah. And I, I, everyone else involved in the project. Clearly. One thing that I, I have always kind of 
felt about Kevin Smith is that there is in inside him there are two dogs fighting okay one of them is nine and likes fart jokes and Talking about really his dick. juvenile shit and the other Just one <laughs> is an incredibly stressed late teens early 20s Dante uh, pessimist I'm not even supposed to be here today <laughs> and somehow he has managed to get them to pull in the same direction so you're saying that to, to create something of, of true value that his self-insert for the follow-up series, Masters of the Universe Revolution, will be too bad, whose magical power is punching himself in his two heads. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> On that bombshell, folks. We will see you for the next Masters or Shira related thing. So we will end on a suite of music by one of the greatest TV composers of all time, Bear McCreary. The music you heard throughout this show was all by Shuki Levy from the original 1980s version of He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. And I actually have a sound of Gonzo in the works, featuring the music of Shuki Levy, because my god, so many animated shows from the 80s and 90s owe their music to this one guy and the team who worked with him. So... I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And... School's School's out! out!